Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Well, good morning, good morning, good morning. It is the 1st of March. It is Monday. Where in the word are you today? I am going to take us into Romans chapter 12, the first eight verses at the top of this hour, and then the remainder of the chapter in the top of hour two. Uh, and so join me in Romans chapter 12. And you're going to say to yourself, I think Carmen wrote, read a couple of verses from the opening of Romans chapter 12 a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she did. So uh, this is worth repeating, worth memorizing, worth soaking in. So here we go. This is the Apostle Paul. Um, I appeal to you, therefore. It's probably the, one of the biggest therefores in uh, in all of Scripture, because you really do need to go and understand what Paul has said in the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, um, particularly chapters 8 through 11, to understand where he's headed here in the opening verse of chapter 12. But we will um, we will not spend the hours necessary to do that. But I'm going to encourage you to go back and read those if you have not done so lately. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith If service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. We'll pick up with verse 9 at the top of the next hour, but let me... um, Let me hone in here on verse 3. We have spent some time in prior weeks on verses 1 and 2, so let me hone in here on verse 3. This is a question about how we think of ourselves, how we are thinking about ourselves. So let me just ask you, how are you thinking about yourself this morning? How are you thinking about yourself? Are you thinking about yourself in light of God's mercy? And if so, then you know you are a person in need of mercy and thankful that his mercies are new every morning. Are you thinking about yourself in light of God's grace? If so, then you're recognizing your sin and your need for grace. Are you thinking about yourself according to the mind of Christ? Or, as Paul suggests, that some might be thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. It's not a question of whether or not we think about ourselves. We're supposed to think about ourselves. And the question is how we're thinking about ourselves. And are we thinking about ourselves in light of God's mercy, in light of God's grace, according to the mind of Christ? Or sort of, you know, having our own mind about it. Paul's admonition is that we would think of ourselves with sober judgment, according to faith. And then um, Paul goes on to describe here 
how each of us and all of us who are in Christ are then a part of one body, belonging to God in Christ and also belonging to one another. Belonging to one another. Individual members, one of another. And I think that's why it hurts so personally and so deeply, why it literally sickens us when a particularly either close, someone who we personally know, or high profile, someone whose ministry uh, we have benefited from, is discovered to have been living in a way that is completely contrary, not only to the will of God, but to the good of the body. And so we are going to spend some time this morning talking with our next guest, uh, uh, Sheridan Voicey is back. We're going to talk with one another about the grief that we share in the wake of a ministry now undermined. Um, real concentric circles of victims around the world. Um, we're going to take up the issue of the late Ravi Zacharias. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Sheridan Voicey. He is uh, a BBC presenter. He's an author. He's a friend. Um, we have had him on recently to talk about his latest book, Reflect with Sheridan, a beautiful, um, beautiful devotional. Sheridan, welcome back. Oh, it's always good to talk to you, Carmen. A shame that we have to talk about a topic like this this morning, but just always good to talk to you. Well, it's good to talk with you as well. And, and Sheridan, we, um, we've obviously uh, been dealing with, I think, waves of uh, accusation and then information and then discovery and then all of the uh, emotions and grief that come um, when a brother in Christ is discovered to have been living in such a way so contrary, so contrary to um, uh, who God is and uh, kingdom principles, uh, particularly in relationship to other image bearers. And so um, thank you for being willing to talk with us today about Ravi Zacharias. And the reason that um, I have waited this long really to till this soil is because I have a number of listeners um, who would frankly very much prefer not to believe um, what has been discovered and disclosed and reported now um, not yeah. only by uh, the the attorneys who did the investigation, but by the board of um, of RZIM itself. And so um, thank you for tilling the soil with us today, and I'll just pass the ball to you. <laughs> yeah, well, indeed. I mean, that response that you're talking about with that group of listeners that just, just can't believe it, I mean, we've all been there, haven't we? So many of us uh, who have had some sort of contact with Ravi, I, I interviewed him a couple of times over the years, uh, those of my friends who have worked with Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, uh, they can't believe it. They couldn't believe it because it didn't seem to match up with the person um, that they that they knew, that they loved, that they respected. Uh, and yet, you're absolutely right. We had some very objective uh, investigations into his life and into his, um, most importantly, his mobile phones. And all of that adds up to the fact that even now, uh, Ravi Zacharias International Ministries agreed, yes, indeed, he'd been conducting 
unfortunately over the years some very inappropriate relationships with, with women and this is not a case simply of sexual compromise this is the important thing i think because just when i've written a blog post about the zacharias affair or other people have talked about it they normally get a barrage of very angry responses from people who say look, if you've ever lusted after a woman, well, then you're just as bad. Actually, that's a false equivalence. We're not talking about somebody who's simply compromised, you know, uh, standards and boundaries. We're talking about somebody who, unfortunately, over a series of years, actually targeted emotionally and financially vulnerable women um, for his own ends. So this is the challenge with what we're talking about here. So... um you know, we're talking about people whom he counseled, and then we're talking about people who ultimately he employed. Um, for, for folks who have not read um, all of the information related to this, there is an in- independent investigation. You can find a link to it, actually, at Sheridan's blog post related to this. So if you go to SheridanVoicey.com, you can read Sheridan's um, full post on this, Healing the Wounds of Jesus' Followers, um, and in there are the substantial and helpful links um, should you want to uh, read more deeply and more fully, um, can we talk about um, grooming? Because I think that there are people listening right now, Sheridan, who um, maybe don't even know that this is how a person in power goes about um, identifying an individual who is vulnerable. And then over the course of a long period of time, um, draws them into a relationship from which they really have no escape. Yeah. This is the key thing, I think, in this particular story is that there seems to be a pattern. And so it it turns out, and many people won't know this, I certainly didn't know it, but um, for some years, Ravi was a co-owner in a couple of um, of, uh, – therapeutic um, massage services. And these were completely above board, nothing untoward or anything like that about these. These were just, you know, good therapeutic massage services. Uh, They were then able to employ masseurs, um, some of them who were women who really needed the work and really needed the, you know, financial assistance, Um, some of them from overseas, and they were able to, you know, find work within these establishments. Unfortunately, this is a part of the problem, and I really must apologize for my dog. You can probably hear him barking. You're totally fine. No, it's because we talked about him the last time you were on, and he now (laughs) thinks he should be featured. It's totally fine. Oh, my goodness. Well, one day we'll have to do a show with him. You know, Absolutely. he's just he always want, he wants to up you know, then show he'd be, me all the then time. Then he'd be mum. Then he'd be then he'd be all shy and yeah, you're good. Don't worry about it. <laughs> well, I've got I'm I'm working at home alone. I can't even rely on my wife to keep him quiet downstairs. <laughs> That's the big problem. Oh my goodness, and we're trying to talk about something so serious as well. But here's what happens: <laughs> is that you know uh, you find an in into somebody's life, and it might be that they are financially vulnerable. And so, what do you do? You provide them work. Maybe they're emotionally vulnerable. This is the other key thing that has come out in the investigation, that Ravi, being that I think he was a legitimately nice person, and he would find out about these women's lives. He would ask them about them themselves, ask them about their spiritual life and their emotional life, and they would they would start to confide in them, they all said, as like a father figure. This is when the grooming starts. He then finds out about their vulnerabilities and then he starts to work on them. And so there was giving gifts. 
There was providing attention. There was providing assurance and affirmation. And over time, that grew to then they're developing almost like um, emotional attachments, romantic attachments that then led to um, asking for photos, just, you know, nice photos so I can have a photo of you on my phone. And then that led to other kinds of photos being requested. And before we know it, you might have a woman who has been given financial assistance, been given emotional assistance, and then very soon she is found to be, she's found to be obliged to then pay back when that request comes, that she sends a nude photo or whatever it might be. And this, unfortunately, is a pattern that was found to be the case for several women when it comes to uh, Ravi Zacharias. So let me encourage you, um, if you're listening right now, to read the full post, Healing the Wounds of Jesus' Followers. It's at Sheridan's website, SheridanVoicey.com. We're going to take a very brief break, and then we'll be back. Sheridan Voicey and I are going to continue our conversation. We are going to move to... Um, to a conversation about tending to our souls in times of turmoil. But if you need more resources and need more follow-up on um, on the conversation about abuse, particularly abuse um, in the church, which is what we are talking about, let me direct you to the Caring Well website, caringwell.com. We have had several conversations here on air with sexual abuse victims um, who are survivors, uh, who have offered us their testimonies and resources and if you would like uh, to be connected to the reconnected to those stories, um, just you know, just let us know. We can we can help you find those conversations as well. Jennifer Greenberg comes to mind. Dan, Diane Langberg comes to mind. Brad Hambrick comes to mind. Um, and if you're a church leader and want some equipping in this area, caringwell.com has a wealth of resources for you as well. Um, Sheridan, let's talk a little bit about um, uh, tending to your soul in times of turmoil. Um, you have a great post on this, six ways to tend your soul in times of turmoil. Um, you know, we can we can look at any number of uh, causes for why we might find ourselves in a time of turmoil, but let's talk about how we tend to those. I think it's just so important, isn't it, that um, we start thinking about there's specific practices that we can do to help us to... <laughs> manage these difficult times. I mean, just what we've seen happen over the last few weeks, really, of 2021 with uh, the situation uh, in the United States political scene. And then, of course, with stories like we've just been talking about with Ravi Zacharias, it can be very easy for our souls to feel really full of turmoil. And then, of course, all sorts of financial or personal problems that we've got on top of that. Uh, can also just make things very, very difficult. So, yes, um, I've explored that a little bit in a, in a blog post called Six Ways to Tend Your Soul in Times of Turmoil. And this is on top, of course, of Scripture, bathing in Scripture, on top of prayer, on top of fellowship with other believers. Those are all really important. But there are some really practical things that we can do to just help us kind of stay buoyant in these difficult times. Uh, one is just to start thinking about the amount of screen time that you're having. Um, there are so many research papers out there now that do link our exposure to social media to our well-being and uh, adverse you know, effects of that. 
Uh, in fact, one research paper actually said anybody who spends more than 30 minutes a day on social media, and that's that's total for all your platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all of that, 30 minutes in total a day, then you start to see a decrease in happiness, uh, an increase in anxiety, uh, and a decrease in well-being. So that might be something to do. The other thing I would say is to really think very seriously about your media choices, and particularly when it comes to news. Um, we have incredibly polarized news services and sources these days because they're very much ratings driven. And it can be just so important to think through very much the kind of sources you're getting your news from, how biased they are, how much fact they are, uh, and kind of factually based they are versus opinion based and those kinds of things. So um, there are some really wonderful resources out there uh, that help you to see, and I've got some of them listed on the blog, um, that help you to see how biased very popular um, news services and uh, media channels are because some of the ones that get most shared amongst um, social media and, and you know Twitter and Facebook are the most biased, whether it be far left or far right, uh, including, of course, you know, the CNNs of the world and the Fox News of the world. So it doesn't mean you don't listen to them or watch them. It just means that you balance them up and make sure that you're not just getting, you know, pure uh, commentary all the time, that you're looking at facts. So that's one idea. Um, another one is to uh, look at nature and explore nature. Um, there have been some wonderful researchers uh, looking into the power of just spending some time contemplating nature. And this is not nature worship. I believe this is actually Romans one twenty in action. You know, that ever since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his divine nature and power have been shown in what has been seen. And so there was some research out of this country a couple of years ago that found that those people who spent just 20 seconds a day just 20 seconds. If it goes up to two minutes, even better, up to 10 minutes, even better again, just 20 seconds a day contemplating nature. Now, that's not just walking through a forest. That is stopping to smell the flowers. That is listening to the birds. Contemplating nature like that, they have increased levels of well-being and happiness, increased levels of desire to care for other people, which I think is a fascinating one, and decreased levels of anxiety and depression. So that can really help as well. So there's two ideas just off the bat that can help us today as we walk through these tumultuous times. So Sheridan, um, nature is uh, a great teacher in so many ways. And again, um, you know, it's we're not Sheridan and I are not talking about worshiping nature. We're talking about appreciating it. Um, God is quite an artist when it comes to. So my uh, I learn a lot from my seven year old um, granddaughter because you know, frankly, I think. I think science is different than it was. It's definitely delivered differently than it was when I was little. And I might have missed this. So she asked me the other day, um, how many stars are there? And I said, <laughs> billions and billions and billions. And she said, how many stars are there in our solar system? And I paused and she said, Grandma Carmen, there's only one. There's only one. And I looked at her like, what? And she's like, the sun is the only star in our solar system. I mean, like, you do feel <laughs> a little bit there. humbled, right? Like, right? There's only one. So uh, when you're out there counting the stars, recognize that other than the sun, well, in fact, the stars that you see are ordinarily at night, so you don't see the sun. Um, all the stars you're seeing are actually beyond our solar system. 
which is really extraordinary. And then beyond, you know, the universe that we are a part of, there are all of these, like, well, the universe, but there's all of these other, it's just extraordinary. It's so mind boggling. And so there you go. There's a, go, get out there and count the stars and then consider not only that God named them, numbered them and named them and set them in place, but promised uh, that the sons, uh, uh, that his, that his children would outnumber them. Like, that's incredible. I don't know. Nature mm. is, am- yeah. is amazing. I'm 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 with you, Carmen. And you know, the apologist in me that kind of goes, the fact is that so many people are running to nature for to find a sense of transcendence because there's mm-hmm. that sense in which in our modern world we've lost any sense of something being greater than us. And so people are, you know, going out and stargazing and they're trying to find that sense of transcendence then. And you will find it because as you've just outlined there that the creation is just enormous it's immense it's beautiful it's wonderful full of wonder and then to take it a step further and say but there is a creator god behind all that who made that who is vaster still is it can be a wonderful lead actually number one for worship uh, number two actually to build a bridge for you know our friends and neighbors who are seeking that sense of something bigger than themselves that we can start with nature but say well why do you think it it touches us this this much i mean sometimes the scientists are actually befuddled as to why nature does touch 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 us in that kind of way and why we're even wired to find some sense of awe and wonder in the world why aren't we just simply content with the little things in life uh no we find some sense of there's some 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 sense of um of uh, we almost get tremors in the presence of something great. And is that not some sort of human response to something bigger than us? And our creator God is the ultimate one who is bigger than that. So, you know, I think uh, nature, absolutely, we're not talking about worshipping nature. We're talking about looking through nature to the creator who's behind it. Absolutely. All right. For several other really great ideas uh, in terms of tending your soul in times of turmoil, check out the post at Sheridan's website, Sheridan Voicey, V-O-Y-S-E-Y, SheridanVoicey.com. Sheridan, as always, thanks so much. Good to be with you, Carmen. Now now take Rupert out and give him some time. <laughs> oh, he drives <laughs> me crazy him. sometimes. We love oh, him. I'm so sorry. All right, we'll talk with you. No, we'll talk with you again soon. <laughs> okay, talk to you later. All right, bye-bye. We'll be right back. That the bright and morning star Okay, you have heard of the seven mountains of culture. You have likely, if you are Kypernium or Schaeferian, 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 if you like Francis Schaefer, um, if you like Bill Bright from Campus Crusade for Christ, um, maybe you are a YWAM person. My guess is you know the seven mountain mandate. You know um, the conversation about the seven mountains of culture and the calling of Christians to be of positive, practical influence in each and every one of those um, uh, seven mountains. Well, our friend David French from Dispatch has um, a view on this that is really important for us to talk about today. There is a rising religious movement that has rationalized a grasp for power uh, by Christians, by taking over the seven mountains. And we're going to talk with him about, you know, how there's a shadow side to everything, including the seven mountain mandate. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen.
It happens to lots of parents today. The kids grow up, graduate high school, go off to college, then they return home to live. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Ah, the boomerang generation. Older children in their late teens or early 20s who fly back into the nest. So how do you relate once they're back under your roof? Well, the first thing to do is to adjust your approach. They're not little kids anymore, and you don't need to lecture them on what to do. On the flip side, you need to stick to the boundaries that reflect your core beliefs. And if a young adult crosses the line, hold your ground. And finally, your child won't always be nearby, and now is your chance to deepen your friendship and enjoy the young adult you've raised. Learn how to get your team back on track. Get instant access to Mark's free parenting course online at freeparentingcourse.com. David French, you need to read what he's writing, frenchpress.dispatch, thedispatch.com, so you can find it all at thedispatch.com. Um, David, the leadoff question today is, um, do you have a dog? I have three. So could you just briefly introduce us to your three dogs? <laughs> well, I have three dogs. One, a little dog that's very old uh, named Gago, which is what my da- oldest daughter called dogs when they were when she was very little, uh, and then the other two are Labradoodles named Higgins and Boo, uh, right. and they're and bigger dogs. I think than I, dogs. I've possibly seen um, a Labradoodle or two on a uh, on a Twitter feed. I ask you this this morning because we have had an appearance by Rupert, who is Sheridan Voicey's uh, dog, and Rupert made a surprise <laughs> appearance um, in the opening segment, and so I found myself wondering since I am familiar. With uh, Jonah Goldberg's uh, Zoe and Pippa, I I was just curious, like, you know, there might be a dog theme going on. And if so, I need to be prepared. <laughs> no, uh, I, I'm, I'm in a room in the house where they can even start barking and, and everything <laughs> and you would have no idea. So, All right. I have read this morning um, your your very fresh post. Uh, how the rising religious movement rationalizes the Christian grasp of power on the set, on the dangers of the Seven Mountain Mandate. So I want to get to that. But let's start with the Equality Act, um, which you say has a foundational problem. We have talked at length on the show about the Equality Act, but your approach to the conversation is quite different. So talk with us about the foundational problem uh, that the Equality Act has. Yeah. So but- – most non-discrimination law that we're that we're familiar with is aimed at something called invidious discrimination. That's sort of the foundation of the of non-discrimination law is attacking invidious discrimination. Why do I use the word invidious, which is a, a term for irrational or arbitrary and sometimes even malicious? And that's because there are some kinds of discrimination that are not invidious. So, for example, let's take uh, sex discrimination. Examples of invidious discrimination and sex discrimination are, say, if you say, hey, I run an insurance agency here, but I don't want any women who are insurance salesmen. Well, that's arbitrary. That's irrational. That's invidious. Or uh, if you subject your employees to hostile environment harassment, that's invidious. Uh, But there are kinds of sex discrimination, for example, that are not like separate bathrooms for men and women or separate sports for men and women. That's not invidious. That's rational. That is reasonable. Um, in fact, sometimes it's even necessary for a, you know, a well-functioning and just society. 
And the problem that I have with the Equality Act is, is that it uh, eliminates sex distinctions so completely that it eliminates kinds of discrimination that are rational, that are reasonable, that are sometimes necessary for a just society. So I would have no problem with a non-discrimination law that had the effect of dealing in, entirely with this in, a concept of invidious discrimination. In other words, um, if an insurance agency said, we're not going to hire anybody who's trans, that's, that's invidious discrimination. But here, when you have a, uh, a rule that says, for example, if you're going to make um, sex discrimination is now wrapped up into this concept of gender identity, then you're talking about, for example, biological males playing sports, or you're talking about biological males in locker rooms, um, in bi you know biological males in locker rooms, especially including the locker rooms, say, at schools with minors. And those are cir circumstances where you're sweeping away rational and reasonable sex distinctions uh, that are not invidious at all. And and so that there are there are irreducible biological differences between, say, a, a trans uh, girl and a, you know, a biological female. And so that's one of the issues with the Equality Act is when you you have a non-discrimination law that sweeps too broadly. The other thing is because it takes direct aim at religious liberty by essentially blocking the application of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act if it comes in conflict with the Equality Act, uh, that is, again, a, a situation where you're um, sweeping broader than dealing with this invidious discrimination concept. And and look, you know, religious freedom law has existed side by side with non-discrimination law since the advent of non-discrimination law. So if you're talking about uh, truly invidious discrimination, religious freedom doesn't block uh, the enforcement of non-discrimination law that's aimed at this truly invidious discrimination. In fact, there's a Supreme Court case about that that dates back to 1968, where someone claimed a religious uh, justification for racial discrimination. And, and the Supreme Court called that argument patently frivolous. That was the exact phrase that they used. There was no religious freedom justification that the law would recognize for racial discrimination. And so if you're the religious freedom laws have existed side by side with non-discrimination laws and have existed in such a way that they have protected legitimate exercises of religious freedom while allowing the state to ban this kind of concept of invidious discrimination. And so what the uh, what the Equality Act, and this is kind of a long explanation, does, it's just too broad. It Yes, it bans invidious discrimination that's legitimate for the state to combat. But it does more than that, and and that that creates a real problem. So, David, um, out, tell me if I'm right in maybe also understanding it this way. We're talking about the difference between judgmentalism and good judgment. Is that another way of sort of understanding invidious versus non-invidious? Yeah, you know, I would say, yeah, a, a good way to a, a good way to think about it is, um, and I, I just like the term the terms uh, kind of taken from the the legal definitions. Yeah. Of this ar idea no, of I like that you're teaching us a new word. You're definitely it's definitely <laughs> going to be the word of the day. 
invidious. Yeah. We're going to learn how to spell it and we're going to learn how to use it. I'm just trying to get us a, maybe um, another mental hook to hang it on. Yeah, I like it. It's arbitrary. Uh, what's invidious mm. is arbitrary. It's irrational. Um, it doesn't lack a found, it lacks a foundation and reason or good, good judgment is a good way to say it. And so, you know, for example, uh, there's a reason why the law is particularly negative on racial discrimination, because there isn't a context really aside from like very super rare circumstances, like say you're a casting director for a movie and you're wanting to find someone to play. Martin Luther King Jr. and you want that person to be an African American, <laughs> you know that that would that's not invidious discrimination to say you want an African American, uh, you know, a Black American or Black person to play uh, Martin Luther King Jr. But in virtually every other context, a race distinction is an invidious distinction. It is that it's lack, it's arbitrary, it's irrational, it's lacking a, a foundation and reason, and, and it's only it's, it's only dis- reason for the distinction is is bigotry. But in, you know, in sex discrimination, for example, there are a little bit more broad situations where sex distinctions are reasonable, like women's sports versus men's sports, for example. That's, in fact, protecting women and providing women with greater opportunities when you have women's sports distinct from men's sports. So that's an example. But you would never say we want uh, now anyway. uh, You never say you want white sports and black sports. That's what happened, you know, years and years ago, and that was invidious discrimination when it happened. And so um, that's why you have to think carefully about these distinctions. And in fact, that's what civil rights law does right now. It provides something called a bona fide occupational qualification exception to non-discrimination employment law so that if there is a reason in the sex discrimination context why um, a job has to be referred, uh, reserved for a man, uh, then you have to be able to articulate that, provide the reasons for it, and you know, then courts will respect it. A, an example from Supreme Court case law is an Alabama rule that limited co- what were called contact positions, positions where people would be in physical contact with prisoners to men only because of the physical power disparities between men and women, and they feared it would be dangerous to put women in contact positions with men or a position that says someone, say, who's going to be conducting a strip search should be of the same sex of the person being strip searched, for example. And one of the things the Equality Act does is it does away with a sex-based bona fide occupational qualification um, that is... Well, what it does is it in, in includes a gender identity non-discrimination mandate in that bona fide occupational qualification, which, again, fails to recognize that there are reasonable biological distinctions that exist between, say, a trans woman and a woman. And that, you know, those are the kinds of things or a trans man and a man. And that's where you're talking about dealing with the discrimination that isn't invidious, but instead has a basis in rationality and reason, and it is sometimes necessary to avoid injustice. Um, all right, we have to take a break. When we come back, David, I have one more question on this, um, and it's about you know people sort of on the other side of the service provider, so not the person who's employed, but the person maybe who is seeking a service from a person 
Um, and I want to ask that question, and then we're going to move on to the other conversation. Hey, you guys can check out both of the articles that we're discussing today, frenchpress.thedispatch.com, or if you just do Google um, David French. These are the most recent articles that he's got posted at The Dispatch, which are going to pop up. We'll be right back. You say come to All right, continuing my conversation with David French. Um, David, one more question on this Equality Act has a foundational problem piece. Um, So can we move to the, uh, instead of the service provider, instead of the person who is employed, um, or maybe it's still about them. So let's just say a person is a gynecologist, and um, would the Equality Act require that gynecologist to serve people who are not biological women? And is that part of the problem we have here as well? Uh, yeah, you know, that that one's a little bit. Um, yeah, it, it, the, the short answer is probably so um, it would probably do that. And that might be a problem. But again, you know, someone who was saying, wait a minute, I'm a gynecologist. I specialize in treating women. Um, it's not invidious to say that, wait a minute, if somebody is a biological male, I'm that's not the training. My training is specific towards people who are uh, biologically female and to say, well, you know, I'm, those are the only the people I'm going to see. Uh, that's not, for example, that's not an example of invidious discrimination to say, Hey, I want to maintain my, my medical specialty or right. to take a real, uh, take a real life court case that happened not here, but in Canada was a person who was a uh, trans woman wanted to be wa- receive a you know genital waxing procedure from uh from a a um you know from a person in Canada and but she that this biological this trans woman still had male genitalia and in that circumstance that you know the state the, the Canadian government relented and did not require a person a woman to wax male genitalia against that woman's will. So those kinds of things, that that's, not in, that's not invidious discrimination to say, hey, as a woman, I don't want to be exposed to male genitalia in the workplace. Like, that's not invidious discrimination. And so that, that's where you're talking about, hey, look, if your goal is to prevent someone from saying, I'm not going to hire an insurance salesman who's trans, which is an example of this, you know, this arbitrary discrimination, invidious discrimination. You can draft a law that does that. You can draft laws that uh, that are attacking the discrimination that is harmful to people while still preserving this sort of bona fide occupational qualification or legitimate biological distinction where it's appropriate. And so, for example, in locker rooms or, mm-hmm. you know, when you're talking about overnight accommodations or when you're talking about um, athletic circumstances like that, then you can, you can in fact do that. And the insistence, the absolute insistence that this law sweep broader than other non-discrimination laws, because again, other non-discrimination laws do not repeal the Religious Freedom Restoration Act or the applicability of it. Other non-discrimination mm-hmm. laws maintain these robust, bona fide occupational qualification exceptions, of course, with the exception of race, whereas we discussed <laughs> there's no right. real concept of race, racial discrimination that isn't invidious. And so if you um, if you you can draft laws that contain these 
reasonable and rational exemptions and protections for the kinds of distinctions that we make that are reason that are necessary sometimes that are uh, that are just and that's that is the problem I had and that's why I call it foundational because the foundation of good non-discrimination law is it deals with invidious discrimination while still permitting those distinctions that make sense bad non-discrimination law uh, sweeps too broadly and this is too broad Okay, so we're going to pivot. We're going to talk about your most recent post, which is just up today, how the rising religious movement rationalizes the Christian grasp of power, the dangers of the Seven Mountain Mandate. Um, People listening are probably very familiar with the Seven Mountain Mandate. Um, This is a pretty much, you know, uh, Francis Schaeffer, Bill Bright crowd, Campus Crusade, uh, well-known to many people listening. Um, lots of people uh, who would be very Kypernium in the way that they think about things. Um, and so all of the seven mountain concept has a positive side. What you are pointing to is that it also has a shadow side. So we don't have a lot of time. Can you yeah. summarize your um, your your article here for us so that people will go and read it? Yeah. So this this is really so the seven mountain concept goes back to 1975 and really even before it. It's this idea that if you're going to think about how is a society shaped, it's shaped through sort of seven spheres or seven mountains, seven channel, whatever, whatever word you want to use. But education, family, church, media, arts, economics, government, um, all of these spheres shape society. And as a Christian, we're going to be operating in one or more or multiple spheres. And all of those spheres, we should bring our full Christian selves to bear in the, you know, seeking justice and all of these spheres of biblical justice, exhibiting the fruits of the spirit in all of these spheres of life. And that helps transform a nation in one direction or the other, depending on how the human beings who live in these spheres live their lives. Well, that all makes a lot of sense, um, but if you, there are individuals, some many of them in what's called the New Apostolic Reformation, who believe something a little bit different than a sort of a seven mountain concept. What they believe is like in a seven mountain mandate that Christians must rule all of those spheres, rule them in a very sort of secular sense. So, in other words, that. Christians need to be thinking hard about ascending to the heights of education, of government, of the heights of all of these spheres, and their focus should be ascending to the very heights, and that some of these folks, even at the, on the extreme edges of this, say that Christ won't come again until all of those seven spheres are ruled in a very earthly sense by Christians. And that creates a form of what's called dominionism. In other words, that you Christians are to establish sort of an earthly dominion over these areas of life. And that becomes very dangerous because what ends up happening when you have that sort of focus on establishing dominion is it transforms the quest for justice into the quest for power. And those aren't necessarily the same things. Yeah, it's so helpful. I love the way that you have um, distinguished it for us. And it is a great conversation for you guys to be having today. You can find it at thedispatch.com. You're looking for David French's newest piece. I have tweeted it out. Um, David, as always, thank you for helping us look at hard things and look at them um, through the lens of, of faith. Thank you so much. All right, that's the first hour of Mornings with Carmen. we got another hour up next. We'll be right back. 
Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.